Well, good morning. Peter, Peter wondered whether I should introduce myself. It's been a little while since I've been in the pulpit. I haven't actually tracked this, but he said it's the longest time since I've been in the pulpit in the last 18 years or so that I have not been in the pulpit. And uh, <clears throat> Peter, Peter said it's been good. <laughs> uh, well, just much thank yous. Uh, you know, this has been a, it's been a strange season for uh, my family and I with the passing of my brother and just other events that were surrounding that and continue to surround that. And, and so into a very hectic, busy summer was injected a series of events. You know, we, we've had a lot going on as a church. We've had marriage conferences and youth camps and weddings and uh, and I highlight those things because in the midst of all that became distractions and responsibilities for me, so much of the, the team took on added responsibilities for what was already a very busy summer. And so I both want to express my thank yous to the church and for so many of you who have prayed for us and cared for us and sent cards and thoughts and just made sure that we were being covered in prayer uh, but also my thanks to the team and to many in the church who have served and stepped up in ways that uh, the summer has demanded, and you guys have been tremendous in caring for the needs that were here. So thank you guys in a number of ways for your care for us as a family. Let's see if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to engage the story of the Passover this morning. You know, if you were familiar with the book of Exodus, and I'm not going to assume that everybody's really, really familiar with that book, you would probably know details of an historical event that's like no other, really in the scriptures it's treated uniquely, an historical event of God stepping into the life of an oppressed people and rescuing them and delivering them out of this oppression. And then there's this storyline of conflict between good and evil, you know, Pharaoh versus Moses, or, you know, if you're theologically understanding Pharaoh versus God throughout this storyline. And there's, there's fireworks, there's signs and wonders, there's plagues that take place and miracles where God steps in and interrupts the natural flow of life in Egypt and injects his supernatural presence there. And amidst all this noise, we come to chapter 12, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an anomaly because we interrupt this flow of activity, and this moment of rescue now is going to give way to this chapter that's very much about installing a ritual in the lives of God's people, installing this ceremony, if you will, called Passover. And it's interesting, I define for us this word ceremony and ritual, not because it's in the scriptures, but because it's what we do when we repeat things that the scriptures have prescribed for us, so that over and over again, we are experiencing something that God has installed repeatedly, right? The word ceremony, Webster defines that as a, a formal act or event that is a part of a social or religious occasion. So this is a formal thing that gets done. Right, and we're familiar with ceremony. I mean, a bit of what we do here every Sunday morning is, is a ceremony. It is the, 
something that we do over and over and over again. It's prescribed for us. That word ritual maybe carries a little bit more weight in this category. Ritual is something that's always done in a particular situation and in the same way each time. All right, so that's what, that's what this Passover that we're going to read about is. And then where this meets us is Passover, if you follow the storyline of Scripture, Passover becomes the new covenant meal that we celebrate communion out of. So much of our understanding about what communion is when we celebrate it comes from this 1450 BC practice that is initiated in Exodus chapter 12 in the Passover meal. Now, honestly, uh, I'm, I'm of a generation that probably doesn't love and celebrate traditions and rituals, right? You guys, you know, for years, there's always been these wars between traditional forms of worship and contemporary forms of worship. Well, kind of my generation is kind of one of the ones that made noise over that. There were, there were traditional ways of doing things. There were traditional songs uh, liturgical approaches to how churches met and what they did. And then there was more of a contemporary idea that came in that, that should we update those things? Should we do something new? Should we express some new ideas? And then as, as maybe the next generation has come, there is a love for new and almost a disdain for traditional things. If it's been around for very long, our culture doesn't want anything to do with it. It wants something new all the time. It's kind of addicted to something new. So here we have this installation of something in the Bible that God's not submitting this to our personal vibe, right? So, you know, if you're a person who just loves tradition, I just love traditional things, just love to keep things the way they are. So, you know, doing what's in chapter 12 here really just kind of meets with me. I like that. And then there's some of us that are like, hey, man, give me something new. We've done that so many times. It's so familiar to us that it's lost its meaning. Well, I'm going to say this appropriately, but God doesn't care what side of the fence you're on in this, in this moment. God simply gives this revelation that this is what you are to do, and there's a great reason behind why you're to do it. When God installs ritual, and by the way, there's a lot of installation of ritual in the book of Exodus, Right, we're going to flee Egypt here, travel through the next, the, the teen verses of Exodus. We're going to land at Mount Sinai, and it's just a, you know, it's a short distance. It's just, you know, a, maybe a couple of months worth of time that's going to pass. By the time we get to Mount Sinai, get settled there, and then you're going to get one ritual after another handed to you. You're going to meet with God, and God's going to give ceremony and ritual, and this is how you do it over and over and over again. So, a lot of the book of Exodus is going to be devoted to not just fireworks and plagues and, and grand events, but it's going to be devoted to rituals and ceremonies. And there's a word in what God installs that is, is incredibly important. It's the word remember. When God installs something and says, do this over and over and, and do it exactly this way, over and over and over and over again. From generation to generation, keep doing it exactly this way. It's because God's trying to make us remember something. And for generations that are going to be far removed from something that God did, God is trying to say to you who are 100 years later, who are 1,000 years later, who are 2,000 years later, what I did way back then still matters for you. So you need to remember it. 
And so I'm going to install this thing in your life where you're going to repeat this over and over and over again. You're going to reenact this so that you remember something that I've done. So ritual, if you will, is a means of combating forgetfulness. And you and I aren't familiar with the plagues of Egypt, but if there's a plague on us today, it might be called the plague of forgetfulness. And quite honestly, you can't, you can't live the life God's given us without remembering some things in faith. So rituals help us fight for faith by helping us fight to remember some things. Interesting insight Peter ends in his <clears throat> commentary. says, the drama of the departure from Egypt gives way to what seems like a liturgical interlude. But, but this is much more than an aside or an intrusion of legal ritualistic mumbo jumbo. It is the institution of a powerful, everlasting observance whereby God's love for his people, Israel, will be remembered, indeed reenacted, until the end of time. All right, launch yourself into this moment, right? This revelation about this Passover meal and all of the ritual we're going to read about here in just a second. It's coming on the heels of all those plagues, all that showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. Finally, the moment has come, as Peter preached last week, God has brought this judgment upon the land, and Pharaoh now is going to cooperate and loosen his grip, and the people of God are going to exit. So they're, they're at that exit moment, but they've been in Egypt for over 400 years, and they're about to depart to who knows where, They've, they've never traveled. They've never known another address. They, they certainly have got some preparation and some packing to do. I'm pretty sure the minivan doesn't have gas in it yet. You know, they don't even know how much to pack in their luggage and their suitcase. I mean, we, we just went away for a week. And, you know, it was an endeavor. You know, and there's just a limited number of us. You know, we, we're going away for a week. There's a giant group of people who have never left Egypt, are about to go on a road trip forever, and, oh, by the way, before you leave, can, can we just install this Passover thing here? Can, can we just take a moment and turn our attention from deliverance to this Passover thing? And, and listen, pay attention because there's a lot of details here. This kind of feels like me doing a devotion with my family. It's always inopportune times. It's always injected in a moment. It's like, Keith, do we really have time for this right now? We've, we've got other things going on, and I've always got too much detail. And this is kind of God in this moment. So I, this is how I justify my devotions. But apparently for God, remembrance is as important as release is. Now, quite honestly, I don't, I don't travel there with God without his help. Because most of us are living the storyline of our own lives, right? There's this grand storyline of God taking place right now. But you and I are most in tune with our individual storyline. Right, so if God's got this big storyline flowing through history, you and I are this, this little tributary of activity within that grand storyline. And I'm paying more attention to my storyline than I am to God's. And so what I want is the next step in my storyline, I want God to get about it in a beneficial way as quickly as possible. And I know what that next step is. And if I've been in bondage for 430 years, that next step is deliverance. God, let's get about taking the hand of oppression off of my life, enough 
already with living in this bondage and affliction. I'm ready to be done with this. And God says, that's great, but time out just for a second. I've got this remembrance thing I want to install. How many guys are eager to learn lessons on remembrance when your heart is crying out, get the oppression off of me? But see, you're not getting odds with God here for a moment because that's God's agenda right here. I want to get out of Egypt, and there's plenty of things in my life right now I can think, Lord, I just want to be free from that. I want that to be done with. I want to see it in my rearview mirror as far behind me as possible. I'm ready to go on. And God says, well, wait, wait, wait. Before you take a step to leave here, let me install something that's pretty important. Because, Keith, more important than you being delivered from that is you knowing me. That's what Passover is about. Passover is about knowing something about God. And listen, all of us have a greater need in that category than we do for anything else in our personal storyline. Whether it's a physical ailment that you have, it's a crisis, it's a conflict, it's something coming apart in your life right now. The biggest need is not for you to be delivered from that. The biggest need is for you and I to know God. And this moment is going to provide for us an opportunity to know God. Let me give you one more quote here to frame this passage before we read it. Again, Peter N. says, Passover is not just an event, and it's not just for one night. The Israelites from now on are to remember this night, impress it on their collective consciousness, and pass it on to their children. It is a reminder, not just of what God has done, but of what he continues to do. The first Passover was celebrated in haste. The feast, right, this feast of Passover that will get installed for future references, however, calls for an extended festival lasting seven days. Such a command clearly has future generations in mind. Since a hasty Passover that entails a seven-day feast to follow makes little sense. So this first one's going to be done quickly, but in the future, it's going to be a long event that they're to take more time to celebrate. But let's read chapter 12 and learn about this ritual that God installs for his people called the Passover. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the, lamb, if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw. Or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, 
your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Skip down to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Skip down to verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Well, Lord, we are couple of thousand years removed from this event and this setting, and yet you installed this practice as something to be repeated and something to be remembered. So, Lord, would you help us today? Lord, we don't, we don't get all the details. And we don't even get all the routines and practices that are here, 
But Lord, you put this in place because there were some things that we needed to know and we needed to remember. So God, open our hearts now to this word and let it transform our lives as you intended it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Ritual and ceremony that are in scripture, they're going to introduce us to some things. And, and when you read the Bible, you know, I don't know, you know what, what you're reading it to get out of it. You know, hopefully you're not reading it in a way that the Bible's not intended to be read. Right? It's, it's not a collected group of strange phrases, just like a, sort of like a magic eight ball that you just sort of open it up, shake it, and a phrase floats up and you read it. And, oh, here's my, here's my word from the Bible today. Well, the Bible's not written that way. And so if you read it that way, you're going to abuse it and make it say all kinds of weird stuff. The Bible is intending more than anything else that it does. It, you know, it's not trying to teach you how to do auto mechanics. It's not trying to, you know, here's how you change the wheel on a chariot. You know, it's, it's not teaching you that kind of stuff. But it is trying to teach you a few things more than it's trying to teach you anything else. It's trying to teach you something about God. It's trying to teach you something about ourselves. And it's trying to teach you about the gospel. The storyline of scripture, which we call the gospel. So when you read the Bible, amidst all the things you might be looking to get out of it, it's trying to teach you those things. Because there's nothing more important in terms of how you live your life than what you understand about God, what you understand and know about yourself, therefore what you know about other people as well, and what you understand about the problem that exists in this world that God is fixing through the gospel. Those three things eclipse anything else you want to know and anything else, for whatever reason, you want to know from the Bible. And so these are in these passages here. It's an interesting thought here from a fellow named Dwayne Garrett who talks about the feasts and the festivals that are in the scriptures. He says Israel's festivals were, he describes them four ways. They were communal and commemorative as well as theological and typological. Right? They were communal in that they drew the nation together for celebration and worship as they recalled the common origin and the experience of the people. They were commemorative in that they kept alive the story of what God had done in the Exodus and during the sojourn. They were theological in that the observance of the festivals presented the participants with lessons on the reality of sin, judgment, forgiveness, on the need for thanksgiving to God and on the importance of trusting God rather than hoarding possessions. Now, they were typological in that they anticipated a greater fulfillment of the symbolism of the feast. It is not surprising that each of the major feasts in some way alluded to the New Testament. On the other hand, the festivals could become meaningless rituals and we're subject to the criticism of the prophets. Where does Passover come from? Was it just some guy got an idea that this would be a cool practice for us to have this interesting meal? No, the Passover gets installed by God himself. This is a ritual that God steps into his people's lives, and he says, do this this way, and do it exactly this way, and commemorate and remember on an annual basis this event that took place. Recall these things to mind. But... Here's a warning for every one of us, and it's in this description here. These things could become meaningless rituals. Not only could become, they did become meaningless rituals. 
There were people that God had given these instructions to that years later, they would forget to do them. They would go through the motions of doing them and they didn't mean anything to them. They became meaningless rituals. Right? You and I celebrate communion together. It's a commemoration of something. It forces us to remember some things. Now, nobody raised their hand on this, but how many of you guys have participated in communion in a meaningless way at some point in your life? Right? You've gone through the ritual. You've come up, you've received the elements, you've heard some instruction, you've taken a moment, you've taken the bread, you've drank the cup. Things become meaningless to us when you and I stop remembering. The ritual, the activity, you know, you're being here this morning, you're going through the routines of life. All of us can go through the routines of life. But rituals get installed by God because he wants us to remember to take an active posture. Nothing worse than coming to church with a lazy brain. Right? You come here, you just kind of go through the motions. You know, the service will get carried along. It's kind of familiar. We kind of do most of the same stuff week in and week out. And we just kind of sit here and go through the motions. But, but God has installed things in our lives for the sake of impact. But if there's no remembering, if there's no active thinking going on when we do these things, then we miss the whole point of why they exist. These things are going to teach us something. Right? So I'm just going to walk through those three elements here and just gather a few thoughts from how this ritual introduces us to God, it introduces us to ourselves, and it introduces us to the gospel. All right, so let's, let's start with God. I think that's the right place to start. Here's an introduction to God in your outline. It says, you meet a God here who is particular, not casual. Did you notice that, God, when we read through this? Did you notice the amount of detail that's in this passage about what it is that you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and how are you supposed to go about doing it? I mean, when you go back and read through it, you get told what to cook, when to kill the animal, what to eat with it. There's a menu in this thing, right? How to cook it, how not to cook it. And you can cook it this way, but do not, do not cook it that way. How to gather to eat it, what to do with the leftovers. There's some detail in this thing, isn't there? You meet a God in this story who's very detail-oriented. And if you keep reading in the book of Exodus, I'm going to say it this way. This is not the correct way to say it. It's only going to get worse. You're going to get more detail, right? You're going to get to Mount Sinai, and they're going to meet God, and then there's all this revelation about how to relate to God, how to be a people amongst each other. And then that next book where most people come to a grinding halt when they're reading through the Bible, Leviticus, it's going to be filled with details, tons of little details that are going to be given to you. And then you get to Numbers, and there's more. And the whole, all of Numbers is not devoted to more details on ceremonies and rituals. Then you get to Deuteronomy. And if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy actually means the second law. See, you get it again. God's going to reintroduce you to all these practices and all these details. So in the first five books of the Bible, there's a ton of ceremonial elements that are given to you. Civil, how do we live amongst each other? How do we relate to each other? All this stuff is being given by God in great detail. What does that tell you about God? God's particular. 
Now, you don't pick this up and say, hey, uh, look, we're about to scoot out of Egypt here. If you guys want to, you know, I don't know, pull through the drive through window, whatever your preference is, just get something to eat before we go. Whatever y'all like. What do you like? You like pizza? That's good. Get some pizza. Chicken? Go ahead. This is not how God introduces himself. God is particular in the way in which he relates to us. And this storyline helps us to see that in some way. Um, I, I know I say this before. It's just an important, important thing. It's an important, important thing in our age. Because somewhere along the line, right, we, we stopped approaching God in a way that's profitable and in a way that's just good. We started approaching God with this idea that I'm coming to God and God is a blank piece of paper and I get to start filling in whatever I'd like to believe about God. Well, I believe this about God. You, I don't believe that. I believe this about God. And then you say something that I disagree with and I say, I could never believe in a God like that. I believe in this about God. Can I just tell you that the God of a blank piece of paper doesn't exist? There is no God that existed before you and I existed that's a blank piece of paper that we get to impose on him who we think he is and what we think he's like. He already exists. He already has a name. When he, when he meets God's people and he introduces himself to them, he says, I am that I am. He, he is Yahweh. He is a personal God who is a certain way. So you get to take notes to learn who he is. You don't get to impose notes. Like, you know, I'm, I'm 51. That sounds like it's old to me now. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm one individual who's lived a very limited life, and I've got a limited number of ideas. And so I come to God, and I say, hey, blank piece of paper, God, I've got some ideas about who you are. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a detailed person like this. I didn't grow up being a detailed person. I wasn't one of those people that had a, a planner with everything written out. Some of you people are. You know, you've got a planner. You're control freaks. Everything's got to be a certain way. So you were that way. You came out of the womb that way. I don't know how your parents survived raising you, but, but they did. Congratulations to them. And I, I wasn't that way, right? So casual did fine for me. Things didn't have to be repeated exactly the same way, put in the same place. It's just not who I was. So I come meet this God and he's very particular. Well, that doesn't suit my personality. I don't think God should be so particular. I think God needs to lighten up a little bit. God, get with the program. People have different views. They have different opinions. Who are you to, to say this is the right way to do that? See, my personality would protest God being this way. Way too much detail, God. Can you just simplify this a bit? I got a lot going on. Can you just keep this to a couple of bare minimum points? Don't you really got to tell me what to do with the leftovers? Can we just throw them away? God's particular. And you and I don't get to redefine God. We only get to discover what he is like and respond to him. And then God shows up in this setting. And isn't it interesting that God shows up in a setting where he assumes that he's got the right to tell all these people what to do? There's no negotiating here. Hey, if you guys wouldn't mind taking a moment, I know you're busy and you're getting ready to pack and leave and stuff, but could you, could you, I don't know, why don't y'all take a vote? Why don't y'all vote and see what, how many of y'all would be in favor of doing a Passover meal before we go into three, four, five, six times? Okay, majority rules. Welcome to America. Uh, go ahead and, and do the Passover thing. God shows up in people's lives like he's got the right to tell you what to do next. 
God, I've been oppressed for 430 years. At least my relatives have been. I just like out of here right now. That's my agenda item. I got packing to do. My kids are freaking out. I don't have time to do a Passover meal. God doesn't show up and ask you that. He just assumes he's got the right to do that. So you meet God in this passage, don't you? I'm not saying whether you like God in this passage or not. I'm not saying whether God fits into your schedule or your personality or not. But you do meet him in this passage, and he is a certain way. Right? This passage is full of picture language. There's a lot of symbolism in it, right? So we need something else about God here. God teaches and reveals important things through symbols, shadows, and ceremonies. All right, God, are you saying this stuff is so important that we get this stuff? Why don't you just come right out and tell us what it's about then? Why all this storyline? Why all this imagery? Why are there lambs involved? Why is there blood all over doors? What are you doing, God? Just come right out and say it. Doesn't that make more sense to you? Well, it makes, it makes more sense to us at a level that won't make sense if you're the creator. Right? You've got the creator who's over everything, and in a way, he's outside of everything. And then you've got all of us who are stuck inside the storyline. So we just come in for a brief moment on stage. The storyline scoops us up. We participate in it, and then the storyline moves on, and we're out of it. Right? This is who we are. There's a difference between us as the characters in the story and the author of the story. The author has the right to do whatever he wants with his story. He's the author. Right, one of my favorite books and movies is The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. If you watch the movie version, you don't read the long books. Uh, it's, it's a very, very long story. Right? It's about nine hours worth of movie. So, I mean, reading it's even longer. And here, basic storyline, there's this, there's this ring of power. And it needs to be taken to where it was created in the land of Mordor and thrown back into the fires of Mordor and destroyed because if the evil guy gets a hold of this ring, he's going to destroy Middle-earth. So there's the need. This ring needs to go from where it is, way over there on the other side of the map, to a little land named Mordor and get dropped into a thing of fire. Here's the way in which the author writes the story to do it. He finds these little people with giant feet called hobbits you know, they're not soldiers, they don't fly, they move slow. Uh, they're going to travel all the way across this land, encounter all kinds of evil forces, barely get out alive over and over and over again. All kinds of characters are going to get involved in this story. And in the end, they're going to drop the ring into this lake of fire and the thing gets destroyed. Then something really weird happens. They're about to die and these giant eagles come out of nowhere. And they swoop down and they pick up the hobbits and they fly them back to a safe place. All right, see, I'm, I'm pragmatic, you know? I've got an engineering background. I'm thinking, where the heck were the eagles when the movie started? <laughs> you know? You've got to transport this ring all the way across the ring and drop it. If I just get the stinking ring to one of the eagles. <laughs> Scoop it up. He flies over. He walks into the cave. He drops it in the thing of fire. You've got a five-minute movie. Problem solved. But apparently the author is doing something different. He's outside the story, and there's a lot being revealed in this story 
besides just that one aspect that I think the story is about. Or you got that same issue with God. You've got God writing a story, and we're, we're characters in the story. You know, Macbeth doesn't get to argue with Shakespeare. You know who Macbeth is? Right? I mean, he doesn't get to, he's a character in the story. He doesn't get to turn to the author and say, hey, man, why, why'd you put this kind of trouble in my life? Why'd you make my family this way? Why are things disintegrating around me? Why, why all these problems? He's a character. And the author lives in a different realm. And when you and I, we, we travel through this story, but the God of creation is outside the story. He lives in a different realm. And he's doing things in and through and with this story that he has the right to do. And sometimes when we question God, you know, the, the Bible responds to questions. Well, actually, most of the time it doesn't respond to questions. There's nothing in here that says uh, no questions allowed. But, you know, you have those teachers that, you know, you, they start to lecture and you, you raise your hand. They tell you to put your hand down. You know, they just ignore you. Okay, the Bible does that a lot. There's all kinds of stuff that happens that you'd like to go, what the heck is up with that? And it's like the Bible just moves on. It doesn't even answer. Whoa, whoa, can we not move on from here yet? I got some questions about that. And the Bible doesn't answer you. And then there are moments when the Bible does answer you. And, you know, you get a Romans 9 kind of an answer. Well, who are you to ask the question? That's, the, you know, how Romans 9 treats you. Wait, wait, if God does that, isn't there something wrong with God if he does that? Isn't God unjust if he does that? And then the Bible turns around and answers that objection by saying, well, who are you? to answer back to God and ask him why he did that that way. Who are you again? Well, I'm, I'm Macbeth. Well, I'm Shakespeare. You don't get to tell me how to write my story. You get moments where Job, nobody suffered in life more than Job did. None of us. And he gets to a place in his life where life is unraveled and it's gotten as horrible as it could possibly get. And finally, there is this question emerging out of him of God why all this tragedy in my life? Why this suffering in my life? And you know how God answers his question? With more questions. He says, Job, you want to ask me a question? Okay, I tell you what, Job, why don't you gird yourself up like a man sit there, and I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you answer my questions first. And God just begins to talk to me about creation and says, hey, Joe, can you explain to me some things about creation? Some things about daily operations around here. Joe, can you explain to me who feeds all the animals, and, and where's, where's the moisture come from, and who stores the snow? Dude, you ever thought about that? And those giant movements of stars out there, Job, do you understand how they move? Do you understand who's managing gravity, Job? All right, one question after another where the answer for Job is, no, I don't get that. No, God, I don't get that either. No, God, I don't understand that. See, at some point, Job gets introduced to a God who thinks and who is at another level of being than he is. And sometimes God has to just let us know that, you know, Keith, I, I, I can answer your question, but you don't understand enough to understand my answer. But I have revealed myself to you enough to know that you can trust me, even though I don't explain to you all the details. 
Right? Listen, and that might sound like, well, that, that sounds like God's asking a lot. Listen, you and I do that kind of stuff on a daily basis. I've got like seven appointments with the skin doctor coming up for me, about seven of them. Not because I'm completely, absolutely sure that what they've diagnosed about me is real. I went to the doctor. I respect the doctor. I've chosen doctors because I think they know what they're talking about. I definitely know that they've been trained and have information that I don't have. They look at my body, they diagnose some things, and they say, you need to do this. The next thing I do is just completely entrust in faith to what they said. It's not like I say, hey, you know what? Let me get back to you on that. I'm going to go ahead and go to medical school and, and learn everything you know so that I can make this decision along with you. I, I don't know what they know. And I grant them that. And I allow them to know something that's going to tell me about my life and going to tell me what to do next. Listen, when you come to God, there's some things that God knows that you don't know. And, and there's no God school available for some of us. Can't go get a degree in God. I'm going to get my doctorate in God. And God, I'll get back to you. And I'll tell you whether you're making the right decision here or not. God deals with our lives sometimes by saying, if I answered your questions, you wouldn't understand my answer anyway, Job. But I have shown you enough that you can trust me. Because you do know that I love you. And you do know that I'm perfect. So there's no way I can fail being loving and perfect in your life, even though you can't explain what you're going through right now. Right? God says enough about himself to show that. Here's another little interesting piece about God. God is characterized in this Passover event by righteousness, judgment, mercy, and loving kindness. All right, question, when you read this story here, when you read the Passover story, did you see all that about God just now? Because if you didn't, you're either reading too fast or you're looking for the wrong stuff when you read. Did you see a God who is righteous in this story, this Passover event? A God who brings judgment? A God who is merciful? A God who is loving and kind in what he does? Did you see this God in here? Right, listen, there's some elements in this story that you can just read through too fast. Right? And we, we like pieces of this, right? I put these four, and God's much more than these four things. But I put these four together because you don't get to pick one or two of them. But if you did, which two would you pick? Right, I know, we pick mercy and loving kindness, right? But you don't get to pick that. In this story, the God that we meet in this story reveals himself. He's the God who's about to execute judgment in the land of Egypt. He's God. That God does exercise judgment. If you're hearing news about a God out there who doesn't judge, my God would never judge. I don't know what you believe about God. Okay, well, you're doing again what I said in the beginning. You can't do. You don't like the idea of judgment, so you've erased that from, and you say, I'm not going to write that on the God list. You don't get to choose what's on the God list. In this story, this God is bringing judgment. There is a land called Egypt that God is bringing a judgment that's going to kill all the firstborns in the land. Like it or don't like it, it's just the fact that's there. And there's a reason why that has to do with God's righteousness. There's a rightness about God. See, you and I would say, well, whatever it is God's doing right here, I'm not sure I agree with what he's doing. Well, again, you know, Macbeth doesn't agree with Shakespeare a lot. 
But the author is right. Because the author has the right to be right. It's his story. So whatever God's about to do, because God is a perfect, righteous being, it is perfect and righteous as well. But that's not what I would do. I know, but none of us are God. And most of us could say we do lots of wrong things, right? Most of us. So who's to say we wouldn't do the wrong thing here? And God's doing the right thing here. So we meet this God this way. But here's an interesting thing. I put this in your outline. This Passover drama. God is bringing judgment on the land, and he's provided a means of escape. That's what the Passover drama is, right? But note this. Wrote this out as well. The blood of the lamb spread on their doorposts was not to protect them from Pharaoh or from the Egyptians. Did you notice that in the story? Because, you know, it's, we're thinking we've got to be protected from something here. It's going to be from those bad guys over there. That blood on the doorpost got nothing to do with Pharaoh's coming to do something to you or the Egyptians are coming to do something to you. That blood over the doorpost is for a different reason. It was to protect them from God and the judgment he was sending. The blood of the innocent lamb satisfied God's judgment. It wasn't that God didn't judge or ignored Israel's sin, but rather that God's judgment was met by another, the death of the lamb. Listen, again, if you and I want to run and consult God and tell God how to be God, we can pull that off and we can try. It doesn't work, but you have have a God who says, I'm bringing judgment on this land. Judgment on all the firstborn are going to die. Well, you know, God, how about, how about you just wipe out just these bad people over here and, and leave the good people alone? Oh, all right, great suggestion. I think I'll do that. And God just goes in and does that. That's not the story, is it? God says, this death is coming upon you. It is a judgment that will fall upon you. And the only way you're going to be spared from that is if this blood from this lamb is smeared over your household, then you will be spared from this judgment. See, there's no moment where God just says, hey, look, you know, you kind of got, you guys are in tight with me, kind of liking you guys. Um, So listen, I'm going to turn my back on what you guys have been doing and these guys get wiped out, but you're going to be cool. That's not what happens here because you meet a God who is righteous and just And when he brings judgment on the land, everybody gets judged in this plague, right? God's uncompromising righteousness, interestingly, is also about to meet his unequaled loving kindness. And what's really interesting here, and you can't really interpret this correctly if you stare only at this. Again, the the storyline of the Bible puts this as a footprint on its way to a bigger revelation. If we follow this, we fast forward, we'll come back to this point. Let's fast forward ahead where another day in which God's uncompromising righteousness is going to also meet his unparalleled loving kindness. But it won't be the firstborn of any man who's going to die. It's going to be the firstborn of God who's going to die. That's the cross, right? That's the day Jesus Christ, the firstborn of God, 
is going to meet the uncompromising righteousness of God. Listen, if there's ever a day when the God of the universe could have said, listen, I'm going to turn my back on this deal. I'm going to ignore the sin for the sake of sparing my own son. The uncompromising righteousness of God, whether you get it or not, wouldn't do that. The judgment of God would even fall on his own son. So before you pick up the idea, well, I like this loving kindness. I like these pieces of God. God is who he is. You don't get to say, I like a God who's just merciful. Well, that God who's merciful has got to figure out a way to be merciful at the same time why he's righteous and just and brings judgment on sin. He's got to be all that. And in the wisdom of God, that's exactly what he did. This day of judgment in Egypt foreshadows the day when another lamb's blood would be shed. And that lamb would be the firstborn son of God who would receive the judgment. Now, reverse and go back here to this point. Who is this God who is doing this in Egypt? Well, he's that God. He's the same exact God who does that on the day that Jesus Christ goes to the cross. Verse 5 introduces us to something about God. It says that the lamb is to be a one-year-old male lamb without defect. A one-year-old male lamb without defect. Again, details. Why? Why the details? Well, it, it's, these are these pictures that are sort of like, you know, breadcrumb trail. You get dropped along the history of God's story. So if you just keep picking them up and following them one after another, at some point you're going to bump into Jesus Christ. All these things are there to point us to the Lamb of God who was without defect. And when the New Testament opens, the first person to recognize Jesus Christ is John the Baptist. And do you remember how he refers to him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did he know to call him that? Well, because God, who wanted to make sure you understood what he was doing when he sent his son, left this breadcrumb trail one after another that John the Baptist had read about and read about and read about and read about. So he knew there was this language, these symbols about a lamb all over the Bible. When he looks up and he sees Jesus, he says, this is finally the day that all of those clues were pointing to, that God would send the lamb to take away the sins of all the world. Douglas Stewart says, the animal served as a reminder of the eventual deliverance that a perfect God perfectly provided for his people as part of the process of making them holy like himself. Proper relating to God requires perfection. Listen, if you don't, if you don't get that point, it is because one, you don't know God. You've made God less than perfect. But if you let God be perfect, and then you conclude that you're not perfect, you've got a problem on your hands. Now, if you make God less than perfect, you just erase the problem. But is that a real solution? Because God really does exist, and he is who he is. So you demoting him to being a perfect God who only accepts that which is perfect, that might make you feel like you've got a God you can negotiate with. Right? I've got a God who's not perfect. He kind of accepts me as pretty good. 
So I just need to move from bad to decent to maybe pretty good. And if I get to pretty good, the God who's pretty good will be okay with me being pretty good. That's not the God who's in this Bible. That's not the God who's in this story. The God in this story is perfect. And the fact that you and I aren't is a problem. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was to be young at the time of his death, male, of course, and perfect, free from defect before God. His sinlessness qualified him and him alone to be the lamb of God, a human lamb rather than an animal of the flock, and yet a lamb in the sense of one meeting the criteria for the Passover meal. Listen, what's wrong with this? I mean, I don't know why it is. I know why it is. It's just the stubbornness of the human heart and pride that says, hey, you know what? I'd like God to be something less than perfect, and I'd like him to give me a shot at cleaning my own self up and present myself to God. I'd like that deal. All right, well, can I just offer you a different deal? How about this deal? God is perfect, and he accepts nothing but perfection, and you don't have it. So you're completely disqualified, and you've got no hope, except that God sent his son to be perfect in your place. And if you'll just put all your hope in his perfection and stop trying to be perfect yourself, he will bring you to God. How about that as a remedy? Uh, That's the gospel, right? But there's something in us that says, nah, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. It can't be that simple. That sounds stupid. It's got to be about me being good. It's got to be. Listen, can I just tell you, if God is perfect, it can no longer be about you being good because you will never be good enough because you will never be perfect. There better be another solution because you'll never be perfect, which this story introduces us to as we meet man here as well, right? In this story, all of humanity is under the same judgment, right? Look in verse 7. You shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which you eat it. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. All the firstborn. Verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. All of humanity has a problem here in this story. It's not just those bad people in Egypt. How many of you know that there were bad people in Israel too? How many of you know if you, if you get this equation wrong, you're going to be lost in understanding the Bible storyline? If you make God less than perfect and you make man better than he is, you've got a big problem on your hand. This book doesn't make any sense then. If man's better than he is, then the problem's not as big as the Bible seems to be making it out to be. And if God's not as perfect as the Bible seems to be saying that he is, then we don't really have a problem on our hands. But if God is perfect and man is more evil than you are making him out to be, then we've got a big problem on our hands. In, in this story, I'm probably going to do this at some point just to help us see this, but I'm going to revisit Exodus from other places in Scripture. But let me just do that for a second. Psalm 106 is the Bible giving commentary on the event of Exodus. So here's the people in this story. Psalm 106, verse 6. 
It says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Now, I don't know if you have that opinion of yourself, but this is how the Bible describes me. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Okay, that's just a few days from now in the Passover. Passover event, few days from now, all the fireworks, all the wonder, all the plagues, all the rescue, and a few days later, they face the Red Sea, and they're all full of doubt, and they're questioning God, and, they're, and they want to go back to Egypt. You brought us out here to kill us, Moses. Great idea. Yet, yet, he saved them for his name's sake. Did he save these Israelites because they were good They were complainers. They were idolaters themselves. They had an unclear picture of God. They practiced things that were not pleasing to God. They didn't get saved because they were good and God was rewarding them by being on their side. He did it for the sake of his own name, his own loving kindness and mercy. That he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease amongst them. Look at verse 19. Later, they made a calf in Horeb. This is just a few weeks after Passover. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Listen, the God who is standing in Passover and says, I'm bringing judgment on idolaters, is speaking to two sets of idolaters. Egyptian idolaters and Israelite idolaters. And you know what? The Israelite guys just need a few days and a little bit of pressure put on them to let you see just how idolatrous they are. After all God does, Moses is taking a little bit too long up on Mount Sinai. Let's build our own God. We'll build a calf that will lead us into the promised land. And they shock God in a moment. Listen, this is the same people who are in Exodus chapter 12, just a few weeks removed. And God is about to bring judgment. Listen, there should never be a Christian or anybody who identifies themselves with God who has a moment where they feel like they are superior to anybody else in this world. I'm as big of an idolater as anybody who ever walked the face of the earth. I want this world to be about me. I want it to be on my timetable. I want it to serve me. I have have seasons in my life where God is at my back and I am ambitiously running toward the things that matter to me. I'm not consulting God. I'm not interested in what God has to say. God seems to be taking a little bit too long up on the mountain to write some ideas down and bring them back to us. I'll do it my own way, God. I got this one. Right, some of us did that last week, right? So when, when God responds to us, 
it's because there's blood wiped over our door. It, it, it's not because we're just more likable than everybody else. But if you knew everybody's story in this room right now, I know a lot of the stories in this room. If you knew everybody's story in this room, you'd be scratching your head going, what on earth was God doing saving that knucklehead? Right? Because we just got some really bad stories. We, we're like the Israelites here. Get out of your mind that, you know, there was the bad people represented by the Egyptians and the good people represented by Israel, and therefore God rewarded the good people by being for them and doing some things in their lives because they were good people. They were idolaters as well. And for the sake of his own name, his name which is loving and kind and merciful, God did what he did in their lives. Just trying to figure out how to edit here because I've only got like two days worth of stuff here to get through. <laughs> okay. uh, let me just shoot off the hip here on a few things. You get into this story and you read some things that God has to say to humanity. There, there's something in this story that's, that's an interesting thing to put together because God is going to tell them, give them a lot of instructions on do this and don't do that, do that and don't do this, do it this way, wait this long, do that next, do this with the leftovers, blah, 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 blah. A lot of stuff. Be very, very careful, all right? So here's what you have in this story. You have God telling you, slay this lamb, take the blood, spread it all over the door. Then eat this way, do this, take this long, blah, blah, blah. Be very careful that you, you don't mix those things together in a way the Bible's not mixing them. Because there's a manner in which God has told them to do things, but that manner of doing things is not what saves them. What saves them in this story? The blood over the door. That's what saves them. Is that all that matters? Well, God sure gave a lot of details here, didn't he? It seemed to matter to God that you didn't just take the blood, spread it all over the door, and then boil the thing. No, 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 don't boil it, roast it. Let's just do whatever with the leftovers. No, 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 don't do that. You're screwing up my picture. God's giving a picture, an illustration. This lamb is about to disappear into a family unit. So the lamb that was just sacrificed now is about to take up his presence in the lives of others. Did anybody see a picture here? A symbol that when the lamb of God is left from the earth, the lamb of God, that he sends his spirit and takes up his life, the life of the lamb now goes into the people of God's lives. There's a picture here, a symbol that God wanted to preserve so that we would remember something. So don't do that. So the manner in which you do things matters, but the manner in which you do this meal doesn't save you. The blood on the posts is what saves you. Right, this, is, this is a Christian life, and too many people get this very confused. The blood saves you, but it matters how you live. But it doesn't matter how you live in order that you can be saved by how you live. It's the blood that does that but it still matters how you live. 
So nowhere in this story is it kind of like, well, as, as long as we just smear the blood, doesn't matter about the rest, right? That's not what the Bible sounds like. We're not to confuse those two, and we can't pollute those two, but the blood saves us, and then it matters how we live. And, and let me just say this. It matters in ways that... Sometimes we get really guilty of this for Christians. We're going through the motions, doing some right things. But we don't do them in a way that actually is glorifying to God. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 28 pronounces all these blessings and curses, etc., on God's people because it matters how they live. That's why he tells them that. And at one point he says he's going to bring these curses upon their lives because you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness and thankfulness of heart. It matters how you live. You got a bad attitude. You don't really want to do this, but I'm supposed to do it. I'm obligated to do it. I'm just going through the motions of doing it. It matters to God how you live. When they go into the land to conquer the land and Joshua's facing all this opposition and this fear and the, the people in the land and how many of them, the spies have come back and how hard this is going to be, God says, hey, Joshua, it's not enough that you just go into the lands. You be bold and courageous when you go. It matters how you do things in God. Promises that are all throughout the Old Testament that get brought up by Hebrews chapter 4 says that, you know, there were these people in the wilderness. They heard God speak to them. They had the same promises of a faithful God given to them, but it didn't help them because it wasn't united by faith in their hearts. It matters whether you believe what God has said to us or not. And these things matter to God. So here in this meal, let's see, Kirk, you can go ahead and come back up. Here in this meal, there is a saving work of God and there is a living reality of God's people. Don't confuse the two. They are saved in Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. That's their only hope to be saved. The mercy of God provides a substitute in their place. The lamb will take their place. The lamb will die in their place. And the blood will be applied to their lives. And God will look upon the lamb and he will see the blood of the lamb. And they will be spared out of this judgment. Listen, that picture. Why does God speak in symbols? Because that picture needs to fast forward all the way to Jesus Christ going to the cross and being the lamb who would shed his own blood. And then it needs to fast forward all the way to the year 2015 and find us. Because we're in exactly the same predicament that these people were in. Whether you think you're a good person or a bad person, whether you think you, I'm a good Israelite or a bad Egyptian, whatever you think you are, your only hope to get right with God is the blood of the lamb applied to your life? Let me just ask you a real question here. It's a sobering question. What happened to the lives that did not have the blood applied to them? No matter how much they knew about God, no matter how much they agreed with God, the firstborn was going to die. The judgment of God was going to touch their world if the blood had not been applied to their lives. Okay, that was true in 1450 BC. It was true when Jesus Christ went to the cross, and it's true in the year 2015 as well. 
This storyline of God has been created for you and I to follow along and to understand there is a judgment that comes from the God who created everything. But there's a way to be spared from that judgment. Because God is both righteous, just, and merciful, and pretty darn creative too, isn't he? That he created a solution. And his solution was to create a substitute, to remove judgment from us by, by not ignoring the judgment, but by picking it up and placing it upon a lamb. And this illustration from 1450 BC was to open our eyes to see that there was one coming who would be called the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And he would shed his blood. And that blood is available, and you've got to make a decision as to whether you're going to smear it on your life and be covered by the blood so that when the judgment of God, which is still coming, comes, God will pass over your life and he will extend mercy where judgment would have gone. That was true then and it's true now. So this morning, here's the the most sobering question you can ask right now. And you can kind of just take a self-evaluation of your life. Stick your head outside the door of your life and look at the doorpost. And tell me, do you see any blood there? Because if you're looking at your life today and you don't see blood applied to your life, the blood of the lamb applied to your life, then you're not going to be spared from the judgment of God. That's in this story. It's in a story that God said, do this over and 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 over again until you get it. But just like this opportunity, this is an opportunity for you too. There is blood that's already been spilt, the blood of the lamb. He faced judgment so that you don't have to face that judgment. And if you let him apply the blood of his forgiveness to your life. God will forgive you of your sins. And you can do that this morning. But you have to decide to do it. There's no automaticness here. There's no automatic blood on anybody's door in Egypt. That blood was there because by faith, they believe what God said. And this morning, by faith, do you believe what God said? It was faith for them, right? How do they know they weren't gonna die a few minutes later with a red door? Because by faith, they believe that God was telling the truth. And you can do the same thing this morning. By faith, you can believe God is telling the truth. He will spare you of judgment and forgive your sins if you'll receive what Christ did in your life. Let's stand up together. Lord, it's interesting to me, it's really amazing that you preserve these these breadcrumb elements to lead us to who you are, to lead us to the way that you are, and to lead us to your solution in our lives. God, long ago, there were people facing a judgment that you and your loving kindness and mercy would provide a substitute to take their place. You promised, and they believed. And Lord, this morning, here we are, in the same place ourselves, 
facing the reality that a God who really does exist is a God who is perfect. And he's a God who brings judgment. But this morning, that judgment can pass over us because a lamb took the penalty in our place. God, would you give our hearts an awareness of your promise to forgive our sins, to restore us to yourself, to remove the barrier that's between us and you. Listen, if you're here this morning and you look at your life and you don't believe that you have placed your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. There's no blood spread over the doorpost of your life. This morning, if you want to, that blood stands available for you this morning, for you to pick it up and apply it to your life. You do that by faith. Do that right now by speaking to God and exercising the faith that's in your heart and saying, God, I believe what you've said. I believe that you are a perfect God who will judge sin. And I believe that I'm a sinner. And I know that I need forgiveness. And this morning, Lord, I turn to you to receive that forgiveness. I turn to you who sent your son to take my place, to take my judgment upon himself. I put my faith in what he has done for me. Lord, let his blood cover me. Lord, when you look upon my life, would you see the blood of your son shed on my behalf to forgive me, to restore me to yourself. And Lord, I know it matters how I live, God. I know it does. So God, from this moment forward, Lord, I want to live in a manner that pleases you. I want to be restored to you and all that I do and all that I am and all that I seek for the future. God, your blood has saved me, but I want to live my life now for you, for your purpose, and for your glory. Lord, that's, that's what I see in this story. All right, dudes, I've only got a few minutes. I just felt impressed to do this with those of us who have, we look outside the doorposts of our lives and it's smeared with red. Right In 1979, the red blood of Christ was applied to my life. And my life got redefined. But, you know, here I am years later, I'm, I'm living out of that reality now. And, and it matters how I live. It matters to God how you live. So let me, let me put a bunch of us in the crosshairs here because it's real easy for me to pick on, you know, the drug addicts and the people cheating on their spouses and blah, 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 and everybody to feel really safe. It's like, whew, those are good for me. I'm, I'm okay in those categories. But you know, it's not so safe and God has taken me to task over this because I've lived in the last few weeks with lots of opportunities to be fearful, lots of opportunities to be concerned about forces at work and things going on around me and to, 
and to divert my attention and to stare at that. And, and my greatest concern for me in this season has not been whether that circumstance turns out a certain way. My greatest concern for me is whether or not I have pleased God by believing more about him than I do about anything else. And so I'm aware that there are moments when I know that's not true. I'm aware that there are moments when I look at that and I say, that thing is going to rule. That thing is going to conquer. That thing is going to spoil my life somehow. And in that moment, I am not living in a manner that pleases God. Because I don't find him to be greater than that. So when the Bible comes along and says, you know, because you didn't serve the Lord with gladness and thankfulness, God was displeased with them. When you go into the land, the land that intimidates you, and you guys got all kinds of lands that you're living in, whether it's parenting land or marriage land or financial land, and you go in there and there's, there's rivals there, there's conflict awaiting you, there's giants in the land. When you go in, go in bold and courageous, because if you go in less than that, you're making a statement about your God. So the way in which we live matters. I'm grateful that there's blood over our door. And God has saved us for himself. But now it matters how we live. So, you know, you need to do some business with God this morning. You need to check in with God and say, you know what, God, I'm I'm not grateful. I'm fearful. I'm not bold and courageous. I'm timid and afraid. Is that that where you are this morning? Can can we just pray for a moment together? Can Can you stop for a moment And let God be who he wants to be in your life. The source of courage and faith and trust and the next step that he has for us to take. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. God, you you become hope in the midst of hopelessness. God, you become courage and boldness in the midst of intimidation. And God, I know that there are circumstances that we are each facing here today that seem big and looming, seem like they're going to dictate the course, the calamity that's awaiting because that thing's about to go off. But Lord, you have called us into a place of trusting you. And you said, remember, remember what I've done and remember who I am. I've rescued you from Pharaoh. I've rescued you from sin and its domination and its bondage. I have rescued you from a judgment that you could never fix. Will I not be faithful to you? Will I not be God to you? Will I not love you through this and never leave you? God, this morning, would you Would you help us to live in a manner that screams we trust and hope in our God? We are not intimidated. We are not afraid. We have God's promise. He will make good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.